The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We're joined by Dan Barrett. He's a trombonist, cornetist, and arranger, both as a performing and recording artist. His preferred genre of jazz is his passion and his life's work. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Paul. Thanks for contacting me. Oh, it's our pleasure to have you. So I think most stories are best from the beginning. If you could tell us a little bit about where you're from, I know you're from California, but if you could tell us about where and kind of a little bit of an idea about your early memories. Okay. I was born in Pasadena, California, home of the Rose Parade, and grew up uh, about an hour south of there, close to Mesa, California, which is exactly where I am now. Often I'm asked if my parents were professional musicians, and neither of them were professional musicians, but they both loved music, and I was uh, very lucky to have a very kind, loving uh, mother and father. I have two older brothers, both of them like music, and the middle brother, Mark, uh, actually played guitar when he was in high school. He's 10 years older than I am. I'm 62 right now, just turned 62. And Mark is uh, about 72 now, but in the 1960s, he was playing surf rock guitar around Newport Beach, California, of the Beach Boys and Dick Gale and the Deltones. And it's based on rhythm and blues, and he was a pretty good guitar player, actually. Uh, still is. So he taught me a little bit about the blues and blues progressions. And uh, my mother, Dorothy, played piano, a little bit of piano. We had uh, an upright piano she inherited from her mother. And my father liked to sing Irish folk songs and American folk songs. Uh, my mother would accompany him at the piano. So I have some more memories of a lot of music around the house. My father would come home from work and play uh, LPs. That's vinyl to your younger listeners of uh, old Broadway show tunes, South Pacific. I remember Oklahoma, he was very fond of. And also the Meredith Wilson uh, musical, The Music Man. And actually, my brother Mark was featured in a college production of The Music Man that I remember seeing as, as a young boy. Uh, my parents went to see several performances because Mark was in it. And that music made a big impression on me by George M. Cohan. He composed music for the theater uh, in New York City around 1900, 1905, 1910. That was his era. There was a great movie about his life made in the 1940s starring James Cagney called Yankee Doodle Dandy. And I was about, oh, five or six years old. I saw that, that movie several times. They play movies all through the week. <laughs> Uh, in those days, there was a, a show called The Million Dollar Movie. It would come on in the afternoon, and they'd show the same movie at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So I think I saw that movie about four or five times in a row all week. It just, just knocked me out. And, of course, the music made a big impression on me. So a few years later, in fifth grade, a gentleman named Ken Owen, who taught music at the local junior high school, he came to our elementary school and introduced himself and made a little speech that I've remembered all of these years about how music affects us in our daily life, and we hear music uh, almost every day of our lives, whether we're in a supermarket or a doctor's office, or we have our favorite radio stations where we have our favorite bands to listen to. 
And he said that maybe some of us uh, have thought about making music for other people to enjoy, playing music ourselves so other people could enjoy it. And he said, if so, he said he wanted us to think about several musical instruments that we might like to play. He said, have at least three in mind because we may not be physically suited for the first two. And that he would meet us the following week in the multi-purpose room and he'd have actual instruments for us to look at. So the following week, a bunch of us went over to the multi-purpose room and on various tables he had, oh, he had a French horn on one table and a trumpet on another table and over in the corner was a trombone. There were drums in one corner and flutes and clarinets all on different tables. And he asked us to sit at the table by the instrument we'd like to play. So I went over to the trumpet table because I wanted to play the trumpet. There were a couple of other boys there and little girls would go over by the flutes, you know, naturally. And a lot of boys went over to the drums. So Mr. Owen, then he kind of looked at me and he said, you know, Danny, he said that the way your embouchure is shaped in your jaw and your teeth, you'd probably be a better trombone player than a trumpet. You know, would you like to play the trombone? And I told him that was my second choice. So I was happy with the trombone. And years later, he confided in me after I had become a professional musician and I was visiting him and he he confessed that he had been carrying this on his conscience, that when he told me that I'd be better suited for the trombone, he said it was really a, a white lie because he needed trombone players. He had all the trumpet players that he needed for the school band. And, <laughs> of course, I forgave him because I think things worked out just fine. I, I uh, started playing trombone in fifth grade, and about two years later, I started playing trumpet and just applied what I knew about playing the trombone to the trumpet. And that's been a, a close second instrument uh, all these years. I play what's called in the business a ranger's piano, meaning I know about chord changes and harmony. I just don't have the technique or dexterity to get around the, the keyboard that quickly. But I, I pinch hit for piano players who can wait for gigs or get show up for one reason or another. I also do arrangements for various combinations, jazz arrangements for various groups. Between all that, you know, keeps me keeps me pretty busy. And I have a steady gig now. I live here in Costa Mesa where I grew up. I lived 14 years in New York City. But we returned to California to care for my mother. She passed away in 2002. But we've been here, you know, ever since. And I play at a local amusement park four days a week on both trumpet and trombone. Two days on trombone and two days on trumpet. But I play hooky now and then to do uh, other things and to travel overseas. So that kind of uh, is what I do and uh, a little bit about where I live and my background. And if you were to describe the genre of music that you do in specific, like there's jazz and then there's a certain type of jazz, what would you say that it is? How would you describe it? Well, you know, I just call it, I call it jazz. And back when the music originated, uh, and there's debate about that, uh, whether it actually originated in New Orleans or cropped up in various parts of the country. But most people agree that the music had most of its roots and development in or around New Orleans a little before the turn of the last century. So, you know, the late, late 1880s, early 1890s, around 1900. This rhythmic music, uh, with a blues bass kind of cropped up and uh, became popular for dancing and popular in 
what they used to call houses of ill repute <laughs> and bar. <laughs> so at that time, if you referred to, if you used the word jazz, I'll say, you referred to that music. And there was only one kind of music with that special sound and feeling. And that was the music to which they referred to at that time as jazz. So and I'm, I'm setting aside ragtime, which you could say preceded it slightly and was an influence on jazz. But it's a, it's a syncopated music with kind of a blues feeling, shorthand description. So over the years, musicians around the country and indeed around the world have taken jazz in different directions. So then you need labels. And most of the musicians I know, including myself, are very resistant to labels. Uh, Eddie Condon, the guitar player and band leader in New York City, he has a book titled, We Called It Music. And if you ask one of his friends or one of his colleagues, you know, what do you play? They would say, well, we play music. You know, you're a musician. What do you play? Well, you know, we, we just play music for people. And uh, even even then, I think they shied away from the word jazz because of its uh, negative connotations. So having set all that up, I'll finally answer your question. I suppose in this day, uh, I'd be labeled as a traditional jazz player or a traditional slash swing era based player. Uh, what I do comes from early New Orleans jazz. It comes out of that. I guess my own playing, you could say, is informed by changes that came in the late 20s and the 30s and even into the early 40s and into the swing era. I listen to and love bebop. I wouldn't call, and, and even that has influenced my playing a little bit, but I'd be reluctant to call myself a bebopper. I haven't really dedicated myself to that genre. And I, uh, you know, I listen to Oh, Stan Getz and Bossa Novas and Paul Desmond with the Dave Brubeck Quartet, uh, Chet Baker I love, Clifford Brown, but I don't claim or attempt to really play like any of those people, but I, I love their playing, and probably it influences me in ways I couldn't explain or understand. I'd like to think it does, but I'm a <laughs> old-fashioned old swing trombone player. I guess you could call me that, and I wouldn't be ashamed of it. And I'm hoping you can tell us about some of the recordings, some of the artists that you would say made the biggest impression on you. Well, Louis Armstrong would probably be at the top of that list, but I didn't discover him until after I had discovered music itself. I mentioned George M. Cohan and the Broadway musicals, and I just gravitated toward melody. I really love pretty melody and songs with a, a singing melodic line. I heard my first live jazz band, I was about 14 years old, and a, uh, it was the summer between 8th grade and going into my freshman year at Newport Harbor High School, and I was helping the gentleman I mentioned earlier, Mr. Owen, I helped him with his summer band program, and an older musician uh, came by to visit, and Mr. Owen asked him what he was doing, and this, this older musician, he was in high school, I was just entering high school, he was a senior at that time, uh, he said that he had been playing piano, and playing ragtime piano at different places around town, and he said uh, many Friday and Saturday nights, he'd go over to the Pizza Palace in Huntington Beach and listen to a band called the South Frisco Jazz Band, and my ears up, and Mr. Owen said, well, what is that, a Dixieland band? 
and this uh, student kind of looked condescendingly at Mr. Owen and said, well, we don't use that Dixieland. We, we prefer to call it traditional jazz because it's more genuine than Dixieland. And I was really intrigued, and I asked him where in Huntington Beach this place was. And with the permission of my parents, he picked me up one night, drove me over to the Pizza Palace, and I heard a seven-piece jazz band, the South Frisco Jazz Band. And it made a real impression on me. And I, I remember at that time, I thought, this is what I want to do. This is the music I want to play. And from those musicians who seemed like old guys then, I think they were in their 30s, they all had day jobs, but they were really devoted to the music. And in fact, uh, one of them, a trombone player, Frank DeMond, gave up a successful uh, contracting business in Newport Beach to move to New Orleans and play with the Preservation Hall jazz band there, and his hero, Big Jim Robinson. So that's how dedicated these guys were to the music. And uh, as I said, it made a, a big impact on me. My brother-in-law, of course, he was my brother-in-law, Brian Shaw, a trumpet player. I wound up marrying his sister years later. We were both in the same high school band, and we formed the Dixieland Band, and tried to kind of imitate what the South Frisco jazz band was doing. So it gave us roots in the music. And from there on, we, you know, we started playing professionally around town, usually with musicians older than we were, uh, some of whom had uh, come from New Orleans after World War II. So they were much older, and we were young just starting out. We were very kind to us and very generous with their, with their knowledge. Tell us about this this experience of, of meeting these New Orleans musicians. Were you in awe of them? What was it like? Oh, well, yes, I was in awe of them. Many of them. Oh, you, you, asked, you asked me about recordings. I'll get back to that, too. But in those days, there were jazz societies. They were like social gatherings of mostly older people who enjoyed traditional jazz and swing, and these jazz societies would meet on a, a designated Sunday of every month. They, they're still in existence, although uh, not as well attended as they were in the 1970s when I was first starting out. So you could go to the, for instance, the Hot Jazz Society would meet up in Los Angeles at Larchmont Hall. Most, most of the meeting places were Elks Lodges or Knights of Columbus Halls. Or, uh, oh, you know, the other fraternal organizations would, would uh, allow these societies to use their place or rent out uh, for a Sunday. So you could go to one jazz society meeting on the first Sunday of every month. Then a different jazz society meeting would meet elsewhere in Los Angeles or Orange County on the second Sunday. There would be another jazz society meeting on the third Sunday, etc. So every Sunday, before I got my driver's license, my parents would kindly drive me around to these various jazz sightings. And you would sign in on a clipboard under the name of the instrument you played. And then the musical director that day would arbitrarily assign you to a set or two, of a set of about three or four tunes. And this gave me a chance to play with some professional musicians. But this one jazz society that I just mentioned, the Hot Jazz Society, met at Larchmont Hall on Larchmont Boulevard. Angeles. And it was the one that was attended by many New Orleans musicians. There was a community of musicians from New Orleans, the, the, you know, married couples and, and single musicians who had moved to Hollywood before and after World War II. And 
many of these musicians had played with Louis Armstrong in the 30s and uh, even King Oliver in the 20s. And they would show up, they would bring their horns, and they would play with whomever the musical director asked them to play. You know, and obviously it was a crapshoot. Some sets were better than others. Many times the Jazz Society would give, I think it was $50 to a special guest artist. Sometimes you'd see the great New Orleans clarinet player Barney Bigard. He played with Duke Ellington in the 1920s. Prior to that, he was with uh, King Oliver's band, the Dixie Syncopators. And he played with Ellington on many of the classic recordings from the, the 20s on through the 40s. And then later, uh, Mr. Bigard played with uh, Louis Armstrong's All-Stars and led groups of his own. So here I was. I was about 15 years old playing alongside Barney Bigard. And Joe Derensburg was another clarinetist from Baton Rouge. He's on Armstrong's record, Hello, Dolly. And uh, Mr. Derensburg played with the Kid Ori Band in the 1940s. And they were good friends, and I remember it seemed like their mission in life was just to crack each other up. But when it came to playing, they were all business. They played just beautifully in that uh, New Orleans style. And more importantly for me, they, they gave me a chance. They started calling me for outside gigs, other than the Jazz Society sessions, which didn't pay anything. But uh, I started working locally with these men. Uh, another one was Andy Blakeney, a trumpet player, who also played with King Oliver in the 20s. Andy was born about 1898. So he would have been in his uh, middle 70s when I, when I met him, still playing very strong. And when he'd play something like Dippermouth Blues or the Blues Snagit, both recorded by King Oliver, you know, I realized I was hearing a man who actually heard King Oliver play these things. So it was the most direct link I could have to that source, and it, it really made a big impression on me. And again, like the others, he was very kind to me and uh, would tell me things in a polite way. If I was doing something wrong, he'd take me aside and say, don't do that. Why don't you try to do this instead? You know, and they admonish me if I wasn't too secure on a tune that I should know. They tell me to go home and work on that tune, and they'd expect me to know it the next time that we played together. And you know, by God, I went home and I worked on the tune, and I'd know it the next time we played together. It meant a lot to me. I have my own theory about why so many musicians migrated to California. The uh, the Ori Band came out in the twenties, and King Oliver came out in the early nineteen twenties. And I'm sure they saw the orange groves, and uh, it was a more I mean, there was racism everywhere, there still is, but it was probably a more racially hospitable climate than uh, in New Orleans in the Deep South. And I haven't read any, it, it's worth at least an essay, if not a whole book, but my own theory is they came out to work uh, in the clubs that were driven by the film industry then. You know, Hollywood was exploding in the, uh, in the late 1920s and 30s and even after the war. So they came out not so much to play in the movies, although you see many of them featured in various films of that era. But they came out to play in the various nightclubs and restaurants that were frequented by people working in the film industry. Because uh, you know, at that time, if you wanted to hear jazz, you, you heard it. You could hear it on records, but it's no fun sitting in your home playing records. And this was really before television. So if you really wanted entertainment, you went out. You went out dancing. You went out to clubs to hear groups. So I'm sure by word of mouth, these uh, New Orleans people sent telegrams and phone calls and letters to their friends at home encouraging them to come to California. And there must have been 
at one time several hundred New Orleans players who all lived in the uh, Los Angeles area. Pretty exciting time. Very interesting. I wanted you to kind of share a little bit about what it is like being dedicated to a genre of music that isn't maybe as well known. I mean, even in the world of jazz, there aren't as many people who practice this form, the traditional. Is it hard? Is it difficult to be dedicated to something that isn't as, I don't know what the word would be, mainstream? Yes. Yeah, it's it's difficult, but those of us who do this, uh, it's really, I was going to say we have no choice. <laughs> it, it, my, my wife understands, it, she uses the word, so I'll, I'll quote my wife, Laura, that for those of us who are this dedicated and passionate about it, you know, it isn't a job or, or a living, it's, a, it's really a way of life. Yeah. And it was for those men I just described, you know, from New Orleans and all of my heroes. It's, it's, a, it's a way of life. You know, what's hard and what can wear you down over the years, I mean, even as far back as high school, I would read long articles in the newspaper about some rock band, a local rock band or something. They, they have a, a half-page photo and, uh, you know, a page and a half about what they're doing. And there was nothing about the South Frisco Jazz Band playing in Huntington Beach. They played there for years on Friday and Saturday nights. You know, in jazz groups, you might see a little bit of a blurb or once in a great while some profile on a, on a more famous uh, jazz musician. But, man, those were few and far between. You know, and it, it seems that the media and newspapers, well, all of the media printed and on television, uh, really focus on, on pop and rock and give very, very little time to, uh, to jazz players. So, as I say, that can wear you down. Just, just the fact that you're, you're living on the fringes of, <laughs> of society as far as their attention goes. But really, as I said, we don't have any choice. I have to do this. This is, this is what I feel I was meant to do. And, you know, and I'm doing it. And, there, there is a niche of fans who really love the music and really support the music. Uh, it seems to be more popular in Europe, and I'm blessed with many friends over there with whom I have more in common than uh, some of the musicians, I, the American musicians I work with. You know, so I go over there and I, I feel kind of like I'm at home because I'm surrounded by guys who share a common bond in the music. And that leads me to finally answering your question about recordings. I mentioned Louie was probably the most important to me. I never got to hear him live, but uh, I, I, his recordings hit me like a ton of bricks, as they had many, many jazz musicians over the years. My father brought home three significant 78 RPM records from World War II. He was on a cargo ship in World War II. Very fortunately, didn't see really any actions. Just had a quiet time in the South Pacific. But he said at the end of the war, and this is a nice visual, this would look good in a, a Spielberg movie. He said when the uh, Japanese surrender was announced, the captain broke out the, the beer supply on the ship, you know, and they passed out beer and everybody was celebrating. 
And he said, my father walked up onto the deck. It was a nice sunny day. The sea was quiet. And he saw rows of soldiers spinning 78 records out into the Pacific like Frisbees and drinking beer and hollering. And, you know, they'd been living with the same records for the duration of the war, so they, they couldn't wait to get rid of them. And my father, bless his heart, went around to the guys and said, hey, wait a minute, guys, hold it. Let me let me go through these. You know, what's he said, he said, hey, wait just a second, guys. You know, I, I like some of those recordings. Let, let me look through them before you throw them out into the drink there. And they said, okay, Ed, help yourself. And they went off to drink beer. And my father spent a while going through the 78s and picking out the ones he remembered he liked. And uh, he shipped a couple boxes of 78s back home to my mother. So I grew up with those. And I remember... When I first started to play trombone, I asked my father if he had any records with trombone players on them. And he said, oh, sure. You know, he, he pulled out a few records. At that time, rock bands and pop bands didn't really have horn section. The pop groups were all based on the Beatles, so guitars and an electric bass and drums. And if you wanted to hear a trombone played, uh, you had to go back a few years to Glenn Miller or Tom Jersey some of the great players of that era. So I, I wanted to hear it. You know, I had just started playing the trombone, but I didn't really know what it was capable of. And my father had three recordings that were significant to me. One was a 1929 recording made by Red Nichols, and Red Nichols had a career from the 20s on into the 60s. He's a cornet player. But on this particular record, it was the great trombone player, Jack Eagle. One of the, uh, this, the second 78 that my father had was featured a trombonist named J.C. Higginbotham. And I loved his name. And he had a real brash, extroverted way of playing that was not unlike uh, a Baptist preacher. He had a, like a preaching quality in his playing. And a, a real dark, uh, exciting sound and very rhythmic swinging approach. So uh, I loved his playing. And the third 78 that my father uh, showed me was uh, by Artie Shaw and his orchestra. And it was a real departure from the other two. It was very controlled and sophisticated. Shaw's big band, in fact, it even had a string section. That was recorded in 1940, but it's a very good recording on RCA Victor. Featured the trumpet player Billy Butterfield, with whom I got to play years later. Featured Artie Shaw himself playing what's considered a classic solo on clarinet. And then toward the end of the record, there's eight bars by a trombone player named Jack Jenny, J-E-N-N-E-Y. And uh, he had a technique and a control, not unlike Tommy Dorsey's, and he just plays a very gorgeous melodic solo based on Stardust at the end, at the end of this recording of Stardust. And I guess in 1940, it, it turned uh, many trombonists' heads, and every trombone player went off to try and learn that solo and play it like Jack Jenny. So in these 378s, I heard Jack T. Garden, J.C. Higginbotham, and Jack Jenny. Just right on top of that, my band director at the time played me uh, a recording of Tommy Dorsey playing on Getting Sentimental Over You. And I really didn't know a trombone was capable of, uh, of sounding like that. You know, I thought only French words could play like that. So all of these people made a big impression on me. Uh, there was, of course, the, the old New Orleans trombone player, Kid Ory, 
who uh, technically wasn't as capable as the other men I've mentioned, but he had a real rhythmic drive and an intensity in his playing and his sound and all of that really attractive. So I loved all of these guys. And the, the challenge for us as musicians playing this genre, I tell students when I do workshops, you know, you're, you're going to spend half your life trying to imitate these people that you really love. And you're, you should spend the, the second half of your life trying not to imitate them <laughs> and finding your own voice using what they taught you, but find your own way and find your own sound. So that's, that's the challenge for us today. There's so much to listen to and so much to reference, so much greatness out there, you know, to, to try and find your own personal way of playing. It, it can be very daunting for a, for a younger player. Is it true that you had the chance to perform with Benny Goodman? I did. Wow. We left off. I was growing up in California. Uh, I was playing locally with traditional jazz bands, but really not earning enough to move away from my parents. And I was 26, 27 years old, you know, and I thought, gee, I, I got I to gotta find something to do. And I'd started looking around for a day job so I could play music on the weekends, like the guys in the South Frisco Jazz Band, and like most of my friends. It seemed to be a way to play anything related to traditional jazz or swing and actually make a living at it, unless you were maybe in New Orleans or with a few regular jobs. Turk Murphy led a, a full-time jazz band up in San Francisco in the, uh, at his club, Lake Magoons. Uh, Jim Cullum led a full-time band in San Antonio, but, you know, those are rare. That's a band in San Francisco, one band in San Antonio, a house band at Eddie Condon's in New York City, you know, maybe a couple of others around the country, but it was a long shot to think you were going to get a full-time job as a jazz trombone player, at least playing this kind of jazz. So I was just starting to look for a day gig, and my good friend Howard Alden, who's one of the most brilliant as guitarist, I'll say in the history. Uh, we had been playing around Southern California, and Howard really announced that he was moving to New York City, taking a summer job with the vibraphonist Red Norvo in Atlantic City. And uh, on the, the night, I think it was Monday night, that the band wasn't working, that day Howard would take the train to Manhattan for the summer. So every Monday he'd go up to Manhattan. He'd uh, meet people, jam around the nightclubs. He had friends in New York City. And he came back to California announcing that he was going to move to New York City. And I thought this was a long-range pipe dream of his. But about two weeks later, he called me and told me he was in his new apartment on 2nd Avenue and 78th Street in Manhattan. I couldn't believe it. you know. And I asked him what he did with his furniture. He said, I sold it. And I asked him what he had done with his old Dodge Dart. And he said, well, I sold that, too. You know, and he said, I'm here in a little studio apartment. And he said, Dan, he said, come come to New York City. You can stay with me until you get a place of your own. You can make a living here playing the music that you want to play. Howard left in 1982. And in 1983, I moved to New York City by myself, stayed with Howard, started making friends right away, was invited to play, was subbing for guys on gigs. Uh, it was like the world just opened up for me. And I sent for Laura, and we got married in New York City. Our son was born at New York Hospital in Manhattan in 1987. He just turned 30. I started doing movie soundtracks. I played for half a dozen of the Woody Allen 
be soundtracks uh, under Dick Hyman's direction. Several other movies, I don't know, Cotton Club, Biloxi Blues, I remember a few others. And I was playing at Eddie Condon's on a regular basis at different jazz clubs. It was a whole lot of jazz, a whole lot of traditional jazz and swing. And the closing night of Eddie Condon's in August of 1985, their regular trombonist, a good, good buddy, Tom Art, terrific trombone player, was the regular trombonist at Condon's. Tom was away on a trip to England, so I got called to play the closing night of Eddie Condon's, and the place was packed. And I remember it was like a blast furnace in there, August in New York City, and we were soaking wet, drenched in perspiration. And Benny Goodman showed up to bid the club farewell. And he had known Ed Pulser, the cornet player and part owner of the club. And in fact, Ed had played for Benny in the 70s in small groups. I thought, oh, my God, now I have to play for Benny Goodman. You know, I, I remember saying a little prayer like, you know, gee, you know, he's heard and, and worked with and had the best trombone players playing for him. I know I'm not going to impress him. But just please let me not bother him. Let let nothing I play, you know, annoy him. <laughs> that was, that was, and uh, I think it was November of that year. He personally invited me to make a rehearsal for his big band. He had reformed a, a big band, and I showed up for a rehearsal, and I wound up playing for him for the last seven months of his life. So that was from late 1985. I had played the closing night of Eddie Condon's Jazz Club in Manhattan, and Benny Goodman came in to hear the band and to bid farewell to the club. And also, uh, just because Ed Pulser had been a sideman for Goodman, Ed Pulser owned half of Eddie Condon's and uh, led the band there. He was a cornet. He still is a cornet player. Benny just came in to pay his respects to the club and, you know, bid Ed good luck. But he wound up hearing me that night because I, I happened to be playing that evening. And a few months after that, I re received a phone call at home from uh, Benny himself. And he invited me to uh, make a rehearsal with his band the following week. And Benny had reformed his big band playing the old Fletcher Henderson arrangements that first brought him to national prominence. So. After the rehearsal, I, I didn't know if I was in the band or not, but Benny told everyone the next rehearsal would be in a couple of weeks. So I thought, well, I guess I'm supposed to show up. And I wound up spending the last seven months of Mr. Goodman's life with the band. So that was from late 1985 until his passing in June of 1986. And it was a very exciting time for all of us. And there were several of us in the band, Randy Sankey, the trumpet player, and Ken Poplowski, who's a brilliant clarinet player. He was playing tenor sax with the band. We all agree that even though Benny paid us for the rehearsals, we should have paid him for what he taught us and what we learned from him. Hmm. And you mentioned just a little while ago about this association with Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. How did that happen? Well, as... Most of your listeners are aware uh, Mr. Allen loves traditional jazz, uh, plays clarinet in a very primitive New Orleans style. For years, he played at a place called Michael's Pub, now defunct in New York City. Uh, then he played at the Parker Meridian Hotel and also at the Cafe Carlisle. Usually on Monday nights, 
and the band would play two sets, and Mr. Allen would join the band for the first set, and then uh, he'd take off, and the band would play the second set without him, usually to the disappointment of <laughs> tourists who thought they were going to see Woody Allen for the second set. But just playing in that style and knowing the tunes, I would be called uh, occasionally to sub with the band. And man, I was surprised that I was called to uh, take part in the 1996 European tour with the band that was later made into a documentary called Wild Man Blues. So if, if anyone's interested, you can see me very briefly just for a few seconds on the screen. But it was a, it was a pretty interesting tour. I was told after the fact we performed in I think it was 29 different cities in Europe in 33 days. So we only had a couple of days off in all that time. It was just boom, boom, boom. Uh, wake up, go to the airport, fly to a distant place, go to the hotel, check in, get ready for the concert, come back from the concert, go to sleep, get up and do it all over again. You know? and, uh, we did that for a few days past a month, about 33 days. That was, that was exciting. It was shortly after that, uh, I moved back to California from New York. So people ask me if I'm still, you know, if I still have contact with Woody. And uh, really, no, I haven't since I moved back from New York. He's using another very good trombone, Jerry Zygmunt, very knowledgeable in the traditional jazz and style. He always has good side men with him. Getting to be around him, was there anything that surprised you about him? Hmm. I guess it was surprising to learn that he personally is just as he appears in interviews and on camera. He, <laughs> I guess I can say he, he seems uh, slightly neurotic. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. Really shy, you know, and we're ignoring the, the white elephant in the room about the recent news about uh, sexual abuse. And I guess, I guess I'll just diplomatically sidestep all of that. It's pretty awkward. It's awful if true. And, uh, you know, I I, uh, I I don't know. I have my own opinion, but I, I don't think this is my platform to voice that. So I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just ignore that issue. Right, right. So now that you're back in California, do you miss New York City at all? Every day, yeah. I feel like I was just there for a, a kind of a, an unusual job. It was one night at a private party in New York. The uh, host had the budget to fly me in for an evening, and uh, I stayed the following day and just walked around and saw New York City, and I went home uh, a day later. And I felt, as I have always felt, returning to New York, I, I got off the plane, got uh, a bus into town, got into Penn Station, and got out onto the sidewalk, and I thought, okay, I'm at home here. You know, and I really do feel at home. I still have lifelong friends there. It is kind of a home for me. And yes, I do miss New York. Tell us what you like about living in California versus New York. Well, I spent uh, 13 winters in New York, you know, shoveling snow and driving on ice and uh, dealing with uh, pretty bitter cold. So I, the first thing that comes to mind, I'm, I'm looking out the window here as I'm talking to you, and I'm seeing sunshine and palm trees, you know. <laughs> That's kind of nice. Costa Mesa used to be called Goat Hill because uh, wild goats used to roam on this uh, bluff. And we're above Newport Beach, which is a, a much more affluent area. 
on Newport Bay and, of course, the Pacific Ocean. So Costa Mesa <laughs> has been designated as the poor man's Newport Beach. It's a very nice place to live, although it's it bears little resemblance to the town that I remember as a little boy. It's exploded like many places have. I do like the fact that I can work locally. I mentioned I play at a local amusement park four days a week. So that's that's handy and close to home. There's a wonderful airport, Orange County Airport. I call it the airport with three names. It was originally Santa Ana Airport. Then it became John Wayne Airport. There's a gigantic statue of John Wayne in uh, cowboy attire <laughs> as you enter the airport. Uh, but it's also been known as Orange County Airport. And that's a very handy airport. It's just a few minutes away from me and easy to get into and out of. So there are a lot of conveniences in, in living here in Costa Mesa. But, you know, if I could uh, if I could afford to be a new renter or had the uh, had the wherewithal to buy a place in New York City, I'd, I'd go back there in a heartbeat. I really do like New York. What is the best thing about being Dan Barrett? Being married to Laura Barrett and having a son named Andrew Barrett. I think those are easily the best things about being being me. Close to that, I am lucky to have true and genuine friends all over the world. And I mean friends who would, uh, if I needed help, I know they would drop everything to help me as I would for them. You know, I'm not sure. I know people in, in the corporate world develop close friends and develop bonds with uh, other people, but I'm not sure that it runs as deeply as those of us who play music and specifically those of us who play this kind of jazz. And it might be for the reason that I mentioned at the outset that uh, this music has largely been spurned by the media and society, you know, so we kind of look to ourselves for encouragement. That's a good thing about being me. Well, we were talking uh, through email, and you were saying that there was a chance you might play a little music for us. Oh, yeah. Sure. I have a trombone right here. It's a 1936 con called the Burkle model, otherwise called the 32H. It was given to me by an elderly gentleman who came to hear me at another regular place I play out in Claremont. I play trumpet on the first and third Thursdays of every month at a place called The Press in Claremont, California. So there, there's a, a shameless plug, Paul. I get it. A Baldy Mountain Jazz. They're uh, old friends. We have a lot of fun. And this gentleman came up and he was laughing. He said, hey, he said, hey the guys in the band say that you're a trombone player. And I said, yeah, that's right. He said, well, I, I have an old trombone in my closet. You want to see it? And he brought it in the following week and uh, wound up giving it to me, which was very kind of him. And it's a, a dandy horn. I'm really enjoying playing it. So, yeah, I'll play. Uh, what would you like to hear? Got an old tune you like? Can you play, um, I don't know how it would sound as a solo instrumental, but what about Alexander's Ragtime Band? Alexander's Ragtime Band. Now, oh. I'll play it for you, but you have to tell me why you asked for that. <laughs> well, I happen to like that song, and I've always been in awe of Irving Berlin. Well, we have, you know what we have in common? I've always liked that song, and I've always been in awe of Irving Berlin. 
<laughs> okay, I'll play uh, the verse. Many of these old songs had two parts. They had a part called the verse, which was introductory material that set up the second part of the song, which is called the chorus, which usually became the more familiar part of the song. So here's Alexander's Ragtime Band, composed in 1911. This is more uh, the music that my son plays, that era. He's a, a very accomplished ragtime piano player, Andrew. He'd get a kick. Well, he'll, he'll find out that I played this for you, and he'll, he, I'm sure he'll listen to the podcast. I'll dedicate this to my son, Andrew. Here's Alexander's Ragtime Band from 1911 by Irving Berlin on a, a very cold contrast. Here we go. One, two, one, two, three, mm. about this this is a uh, what they they uh, used to call stumpo el bando <laughs> can you play a song that even predates that oh <laughs> sure <laughs> no problem i'm sure yeah uh here's uh swanee river by stephen foster okay that's excellent i think I'd have to look it up. I think this was composed in, I'm going to say 1835 or somewhere in there. Just a second. Okay. One, two, one, two, three. Swanee River. 
Very nice. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for doing all of this and for playing for us. Well, I was, uh, as I said earlier, I was thrilled when you contacted me, Paul. It's nice to meet you here online and uh, get to know you a little bit. Uh, I should interview you about your <laughs> How did you get interested in, uh, in doing what you're doing? Oh, well, I mean, it's been... Um, originally, I was writing, and I am a huge, huge fan of music, huge collection of music. I decided that I, I was a better interviewer than I was a writer, and so I cut out the the middle part of writing. I see. <laughs> so that's how it all began. But I have a fondness for, in particular, jazz. I can tell. <laughs> but I'm all over the place, really. I mean, it's just... Uh, I do have to say, I'm very sorry that we had so many interruptions and whatnot with the recording. Well, those are things uh, beyond our control. True. <laughs> Doesn't doesn't pay to worry about him, does it? That's true. You know. All right, well, I'll sign off. All right. Well, have a wonderful day, sir. Thank you very much, Paul. You too. Well, folks, that was the interview with Dan Barrett. If you'd like to visit Dan Barrett's website, the doorway to his unique world of jazz, just visit danbarrettmusic.com. You may have noticed a little bit of the audio kind of going in and out on this interview. I did my best in terms of doctoring it up and making it sound as good as possible. But what can you do, as he said? Sometimes you just don't get the perfect sound quality that you want. Not that anything can ever be perfect. I thought it was really cool that he played music. That's something that I really enjoyed, and I hope to do on future episodes of the Paul Leslie Hour. It's very cool, and I like... The fact that he was able to play those classic songs from American history. Thank you again, Dan, for joining us. Maybe I'll see you the next time you're in the Southland. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment. For information, visit thepaulleslie.com. Thank you for being with us. Until next time. <laughs>